Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Guys, I'm going to take a picture of you, because you don't know how beautiful you look. You, I'm going to just stare at your beautiful faces for a second. <laughs> thank you guys for coming. Thank you, Skylight, and thank you, Tim, for making fun of us, and he was like making fun of us for 10 minutes there. Um, so... Yeah, hi. I'm just going to take you in for a second. <laughs> um, so my book is called The Suicide of Claire Bishop, and I'm also going to do more thank yous later, by the way, so you'll be singled out. Um, and it's a two-voice narrative, um, and I'm going to read a little bit from each voice, uh, seven minutes from the voice of Claire and seven minutes from the voice of West. So we start in 1959 with Claire Bishop sitting for her portrait, and then we jump throughout time through the book, and we follow her in the painting. Um, and we also meet West in 2004, uh, and he is a data miner, and he has schizophrenia, and he finds this painting in a gallery and becomes obsessed with it. So the painting links them. Um, so I'm going to start with Claire. Claire could not look at herself. She was not allowed. The artist had forbade it, touching the top of Claire's hand with her own, not until it's finished, she'd said. And it nearly was. The portrait was on the easel in the corner of the den, covered only in a purple velvet drape, cleverly propped out two inches so as not to touch the wet canvas. Claire stood in the center of the room facing the back of the easel, tapping her fingers on her leg as if counting the seconds until she could look. The portrait had been Freddie's idea of a gift for her 35th birthday. She'd hated him for it until the painter arrived that first day. Now the painter was in the kitchen, cleaning her brushes. Most nights the artist concealed the painting by knotting the gold-fringed drape tightly to the bottom of the easel. Tonight it hung loose. It was childish, this great pulse toward the painting. Come look at me, look at me, not tomorrow or in ten minutes, but now. There was a secret in it, the way trees held secrets, or the rusting fire escapes in the alleyways she rushed past on bleaker. She circled the easel, circled it twice, a tiger. She glanced out the French doorways to the hallway. She whispered the artist's name to herself once, Nicolette. Something inside her could have pirouetted out of control. She held the gold fringe of the drape. She lifted. Nicolette entered with a fistful of brushes. Baby oil dripped from the bristles, greased her fingertips. Claire dropped the drape, having seen nothing. Was she disappointed? Only, perhaps, at being caught. She wouldn't want Nicolette to think her disrespectful. She knelt on the blue drop cloth below the easel, straightening it, looking busy. She billowed the pale blue sheet, and it swelled with air, her own private ocean. 
I think I'll head up to the roof for a smoke before I go, the painter said, smiling down at Claire. Claire, on all fours in her wool pencil skirt, looked over her shoulder. Nicolette held the light from the hall like a shawl draped across her arms. It was how light should work on a woman. She was beautiful, but she held herself protectively under that smile, as if no one had ever told her so. Claire certainly was not going to be the one to break the news. She rose hurriedly, her wool skirt sticking to her stockings. I'll come with you. On the roof, the water tower hung in the dusk air above them, a suspended animal skeleton, a zebra, Claire decided. She'd only seen a zebra once in Cuba, in someone's yard. She sometimes found she missed that zebra. By the time she'd pointed it out to Freddy, it had disappeared. He'd called her crazy and hadn't believed her. Just as well, she thought then, the zebra is mine. To tell the truth, I don't smoke, Claire said. Freddy hates it. The artist was busy rolling her own cigarette on the ledge, shaking loose tobacco from the pouch like a regular dock worker, trying not to lose it in the wind. What Freddie doesn't know, Nicolette said. She licked the paper, handed the finished product to Claire, and lit it for her. Her hand grazed Claire's cheek. Nicolette smelled dangerous. They stood close together, facing north, peering over the street nine stories below, sharing the cigarette, rebellious. But the wind stole her smoke so quickly, it was as if she'd let nothing out. I was up there last week uptown, Nicolette said, gesturing north toward the high-rises. Doing a portrait of this blubber man, I was up on his roof smoking, and I realized I was in the view. I didn't have a view. Nicolette held Claire's gaze. Not here, though, she said. Here I have the perfect view. I love it up here, Claire averted her eyes, blushing. It makes up for everything else. Even Freddy, Nicolette asked. I'm skipping ahead just a little. She tried to push the painting, unlocked, untied, from her mind. But then she found herself sitting again on the couch in the den, as if still posing, facing the back of the draped canvas, and beside it, the blank wall above the mantel where it would hang. Claire tipped back the last of her drink and was feeling terribly light. Had she forgotten to eat supper again? Freddie was dining out, as he often did, with a colleague from work or someone, that woman from work. Claire worried he might be meeting Nicolette. It was a stupid worry, she knew, and yet she wouldn't be surprised. But Nicolette had such a queer nose. Freddie could never love a girl with such a queer nose, and even if he could, Nicolette didn't seem keen on him or any man. Claire, however, could appreciate the queerness of a nose. Claire steadied herself and edged toward the painting. She tiptoed to the front of it, where Nicolette had sat for three days staring at her. Could she have left it untied on purpose? On that first day, as Claire sat rigid on the couch, she had asked Nicolette what exactly she was doing with her charcoal fragments and sketchboard. Nicolette replied that she'd wanted Claire's face in her muscle memory, so the likeness of her would become subconscious. Claire smoothed out her skirt. She wanted to see herself like that, too, to know herself. Claire lifted the drape. There Claire was and wasn't. Her body was severed across the canvas, severed and repeated, repeated and mutilated. A a A woman and the body of a woman. Claire, at every moment of her life, a young girl, then elderly, then her current self with dirty blonde waves done up in rollers, all unmistakably Claire, Claire falling from a bridge. 
It was a portrait of a dead woman. Nicolette had killed her. It was not a portrait, but it was of Claire. There was Claire, fixed to canvas many times over, Claire falling, again Claire falling, Claire falling from a bridge. It was not nice to look at. It was almost ugly. Or maybe it was beautiful, avant-garde. Maybe she wasn't smart enough to understand. Freddie had told her as much. That was years ago at a gallery opening of a friend of his. She'd embarrassed him, saying loudly, drunkenly, how awful the paintings were. Like children's drawings, she'd said. But this was another matter. So what if it was art? Claire was smart enough to know that a person should not paint this instead of a portrait when commissioned to paint a portrait. This was something else. It was Claire falling from the Brooklyn Bridge. It was Claire dead on the street below, her own street. Not the East River, but the cobblestones of Sullivan. What did that mean? Who was Nicolette to paint her this way? Whatever it was Nicolette had seen in Claire was obviously a mistake. Nicolette was mistaken. Claire slammed her body into the wall behind her. She was made of rubber. She wanted, with a sudden and foreign fury, to hit herself. So, now we're going to move to West. And so West, we're going to skip kind of far ahead to West. Um, West, by this point in the book, has found the painting in the gallery, and his, uh, he's convinced that it was painted by his ex-girlfriend in 2004, even though the painting was painted in 1959. So he's come up with a delusion involving time travel and Hasidism and other fun things. And he's met a man named Jill, uh, who worked at the gallery but has just quit. And now they made an appointment to meet by the gallery in the alleyway. Uh, for a reason you'll find out. When I find Jill, I guess I expected to see a whole entourage of paid-off thieves. I'm disappointed it's only him. With his leather-gloved hands, he throws me a pair of cheap black-knit gloves, meant for kids, and a salmon-colored ski mask. It's salmon-colored, I say. Is it salmon? I'd call it pink, he shrugs. It's hard to find black. It's summer. I gesture with my eyes at his mask, which just so happens to be black. I had mine a few seasons. What if they catch me because of the color, I say. He says there's only one real camera on floor nine where we're heading, black and white, which he tells me I should have known from heist movies. He digs through the garbage bag at his feet and pulls out two styrofoam bowls. Put these on your shoulder, under your shirt. I look at his, him as an um. He rolls his eyes like I should have known this too. On the off chance we're recorded, they won't be able to recognize your body type. Get it? He pushes them into my hands. Trust me. I slip on the bowls and the gloves, which stretch just enough to fit over my hands. And I'm, I'm about to put on the pink mask, but Jill shakes his head and tells me to wait until we're in the front door, that we don't want to look suspicious to passers-by. Did you bring the cash, he asks. I dig the 500 bucks out of my front pocket and hand it over. He shoves the money into an empty Marlboro pack. Thanks, he mumbles. He's embarrassed. Then he pinches off the cherry of his cigarette, sticks it in the front pocket, and stands up straight. I take a deep uh, breath so deep it hurts. He might have gotten me a girl's mask, but at least he looks ready. He nods. I nod back. 
The bricks are yellowing their faces in the early evening sun. Sure, there are words in me, like, what am I doing? And this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. I'll rot in jail and get raped by big hairy men. But the cottony fear suffocates them out, my lunch ticking in my stomach like a bomb. I want to ask for water. We edge out of the alley, and Jill looks up and down the street like in the movies. Then he unlocks the big metal door, and we're in, just like that, as if we're doing nothing wrong. It's surprisingly loud in the quiet of the closed-up building. We slip on our masks, and I hear the sound of a washing machine coming from somewhere else, or maybe the sound of a very gravelly female voice humming a Bulgarian song. There are the words, out of control, and dumbass lame boy, tapping out of the walls. Jill wraps himself around the stairwell like he's a blanket of snowmelt, silent, dripping. He's obviously had practice with this. There's a secret strength in him. I bumble up after. There are our staccato steps, arguing with the static of the building, an old snore and hum. There is the battle in the walls, rats and other long-toothed animals. A city centipede crawling faster than me up the stairs. It slips into a crack where I can't follow. So you've done this before? I ask out of breath by the tenth step. Shh. So you've done this before? I whisper. No, sort of. I've done this before, yes, all right. Never galleries, only homes. You're a real art thief? I prefer to think of myself as part of the growing field of art valuation. Fell into it in my 20s. His voice is being broadcast from the metal handrail I'm holding. I'm afraid my voice will do the same, so I keep my answer brief. Hmm... Between flights three through nine, Jill whispers to me the story of the painting. He says it lingered on the black market for a long time. Then it was sold in auction since it was never reported as a theft. Bought by a woman is all he knows. Then there was a 20-year gap when no one knew where it was until one day the painting ended up here, apparently donated. They probably had it in a storeroom for years. Then he tells me about his own heists. I follow all my cases online, he says. Good to keep tabs on that sort of thing. The Interpol website's pretty comprehensive. The FBI's okay. It means something if a painting you grabbed gets posted under recent thefts right up there with the scream. He tells me if it makes the 5 o'clock news, they usually report the value and hence your percentage of the market sale, and how can you turn your back on those dollar signs? But he says our job here won't make the nightly news, what with the GOP in town, and the authorities try their best to not let these things go public and how, e- and how easy it is to rip off $50,000 works of art. We reach the ninth floor, me drinking my own linty sweat and m- from my upper lip. Jill unlocks the gallery door and says he'll keep a lookout, and I nod solemnly because that was the deal. He wasn't going to do the actual deed. Inside the gallery, everything is ringed with salmon-colored fuzz. The hardwood floors, the walls, the desk sans gallery sitter, there's a siren in the distance. A clock that I never noticed before ticks so loudly that my bones vibrate, the sounds of trying to be quiet. My own muscles berating me. It's fine, I tell my muscles. I'm about to finally have something real to offer Nicolette. And there it is, waiting for me. The falling woman's hair glows. I can almost feel it on my scalp. Her arm drooping over the frame, glistening like she's sweating too. The whole thing shines out, its essence reaching for me, bright as lightning as I lift it from the wall. (coughs) Time falls around me. The gallery walls crumble brick by brick. 
Through the bouquets of mortar and dust, I see the ancient meadows of the city. They hover above the sidewalk, the traffic cones running down to the estuary and the sea. I see the layered shin bones of our ancestors and feel the soil between my toes, the wild marshes of Manhattan. Beyond that is the liquid future shimmering and proud, the high clouds, the satellites, all shot through with light. Briefly, I crawl into the painting. The cobblestone street, the Brooklyn Bridge, the body of a woman falling. Every brushstroke an apology. I am the little masked thief in the corner of the image, nearly invisible, walking down the painted street. I tap my foot on a cobblestone, smudge it. A snap of the nail hitting the floor. A streak of lightning in my peripheral vision, the sound of an alarm. In the shape of a lightning bolt, the gallery wall splits open. All of us, for a brief and infinite second, are sucked into the seam of the world, slipped through the crack, disappeared like we never existed. And I don't know who I am, and no one will know us, because there is no one to do the remembering, and no one will forget us either, since there is nothing to be forgotten. The world is quiet because it's gone. In the end, there is just me and the painting. Jill's beside me. He grabs the painting. We run up, up. I swear he's grinning. We burst up to the open tar roof. They're coming, he says. What took you so long? They're coming, I say. So if you guys just want to talk for a little bit and if you have any questions we'll just talk for about 10 minutes and then we'll drink beer sound good <laughs> hi Pamela <laughs> um, I would love to just hear a little bit about the path this took to get published because I read some of those passages pretty much like they were so wonderful a years ago yeah Oh, just the revision no, process? and I, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess probably what my friend Pamela is, I hope you look at the acknowledgments, uh, helped me a long time ago. And um, uh, what she saw was probably very different. I think I started with West um, and then later start, decided to start with Claire um, in a more grounded space instead of starting kind of up here in West's world. Um, but, and then I kept, the other huge change that happened probably since that draft was, um, we probably didn't see the painting till page 50, and now we see it on page 5. So uh, I think just moving, moving up. But, um, but yeah, and then since then, I, I guess just writing and sent it out to agents and finally got an agent, and then eventually uh, found a Zank, which is an amazing press. So, yeah. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. That was like, um, there's lots of waiting. There's lots of waiting in there, writing other things. Sarah. Um, how did you get into the head of, of the character West? Yeah. Um, I did lots of research. I um, wanted to write the character West because I have 
I had two friends who were diagnosed with schizophrenia um, at different points in my life and their life, and um, I was so struck by their experiences, and I had never read anything like that in literature, especially not in the first person. Um, so I did. I wanted to get as close to that point of view as possible um, with their permission, and. Uh, we, I interviewed lots of people, I read lots of memoirs and um, uh, other novels that deal with schizophrenia, and yeah, I, I know that I won't uh, get it right. You know, there's no way that I can get that experience exactly right, but, um, but I did uh, as much work towards that as I could. Um, I wanted them to those friends to be able to recognize themselves on the page because um, I don't think they're really represented as characters often um, and I wanted other people who have had no experience with mental illness to recognize themselves in West also I think that that was probably my, my biggest goal at least in revision um, yeah <laughs> yes Allison <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great observation because West is unreliable in a way, but he's um, as reliable as he could possibly be. He's telling us his truth. You know, it's his reality. Um, he's not putting one over on us like another type of unreliable narrator um, for his own gain or needs. So so he really is this truthful storyteller, um, though maybe part of him knows uh, you know, there's a different way of looking at things. Claire, um, yeah, really, uh, I feel like there's a lot of similarities between Claire's sanity, which is a big part of her her backstory, you know, the fact that she is sane, and West's insanity. I think there's a thin line there, and a lot of similarities between the two of them. They both don't know who they are and are looking to figure that out. Um, so, but Claire's story actually came from, um, so Sarah, who just asked a question, is a lovely poet, and she wrote this beautiful poem about a Frida Kahlo painting called The Suicide of Dorothy Hale, and uh, Frida Kahlo was commissioned to paint a portrait um, of a woman who'd committed suicide, and it was supposed to be this commemorative, lovely painting, uh, but instead she painted the woman jumping from a skyscraper uh, and it was really insulting and really beautiful and uh, so I took that and twisted it that anecdote um, so that very living Claire has a painting of her suicide yes um, when you set out to write the novel did you have a specific intention in mind that was the, like the goal was for you 
like a cathartic experience versus like that you wanted your readers to have a specific take away a specific message or I think the message and thinking about a reader came in draft two or five uh, when I did first start writing it. It definitely wasn't for my own eyes, but I also never thought anyone would read it. So, uh, so it's too you know. There's that this constant contradiction when you're writing, right? You're writing alone in your room, and also um, for this invisible audience. The idea of who my audience was shifted, though. I thought that at first it was for this very tiny literary community, um, and then I realized that I really wanted it to reach other people and I wanted my aunt to love it and my mother so I think um, uh, they're uh, wanting I wanted them to get something out of it and maybe somebody else gets a, a different layer out of it um, but the idea of um, wanting to talk about mental illness and the kind of politics of that did uh, come later yeah not while drafting that's a good question what you, out, what you got? Yes. <laughs> Did uh, West or Claire ever do something that surprised you that you didn't think they were going to do? Oh, that's a good question. Yes. Um, I felt like I, I wasn't ever really making them do the weird things they do, like Claire pours water all over her husband's head for some reason, and... Uh, yeah, so they do, they do surprise me, sure. Like, you, you get to know them that well. And then there are moments where... You know, you think, I can't believe I did that to my character, who I love so much. Um, so, but, you know, I, I knew what had to happen to her from the beginning, and um, I won't tell you the details of it, but, uh, but you know, I, I cried while I wrote, you know, what had to happen to Claire, because I didn't want it to happen to her. <laughs> but, yeah, so you do get attached to those characters like that. I saw, yes. Hi. Is there a version of this novel where it was just from a point of view and you sort of It's always been two points of view. Um, yeah, I don't think I would have conceived of it as a novel if it had just been one or the other. But at that point, you know, that lovely time in writing when you're just, like, you have suction cups on your fingers and everything is material. Um, I haven't felt that way in a long time, but, uh, but you know, I was already thinking about West, probably. I knew I had to write West, and then I heard Sarah's poem, and, um, and then it all sort of formed in my mind. And it was always a novel to begin with. It was never a short story first or anything like that. Um, Maybe we'll take just one more question. <laughs> Do you? Yeah, yeah. Jean. <laughs> uh, I wonder, I have kind of two questions that maybe they can be together. <laughs> one of them is, if you're writing with two different voices, did you change your process? Did you like write in a different place for each voice, or did, you, did that change how you wrote? And this is your first novel, right? Yes. What did you learn about publishing, or what did you learn about writing, I guess, from this experience? Um, so, wait, repeat the first question. <laughs> the two different voices, did you write in different places? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and there's, there was uh, kind of like a lot of self-care around writing, um, 
kind of the dark spaces that the novel goes or that I had to go to for that. Um, uh, but in the moment, yeah, I can't remember like what in the revision process I, I did to uh, um, specifically sit down and get into Claire. But I think that, you know, for Claire, I would read... Um, so I always have something to read to get into the voice. I th um, and so Michael Cunningham was a big one for Claire. For uh, West, it was Richard Sykin, uh, the poet. And, uh, yeah, just the voices. Those, those writers helped me find the voices of both Claire and West. And so I kept them um, just there so I could remind myself uh, of the space I was in when I first heard those two characters. Um, and yeah, I just, some of these questions, by the way, maybe one of them was planted. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, what have I learned, um, is to, um, be kind. Um, this is, I've, I can't tell you how grateful I feel. Um, through this whole publishing process and what wonderful friends I have and who have all come out tonight and it's so wonderful to see all your faces and uh, it takes a village, you know, and um, it takes so much kindness of others to make a book happen. Um, so I guess that's, that is what I've learned. And, um, and so uh, I do, I did want to close by just saying, making you guys do something silly, um, which is the other day on um, Doug's podcast, we, I was telling them about trolls that are already like on the internet on Barnes and Noble. I can't imagine why someone would sit down and just be mean, right? That doesn't make any sense. So Brent Weinbach came up with an idea that we should all be fairies. And instead of just, uh, you know, randomly saying mean things, we should randomly say nice things to people online that we've never met or and we don't know their work at all. Um, so, so that's what you should do when you go home. But here, as soon as I leave this podium, uh, you guys should turn to the person next to you and say one really nice thing about them. And even if you don't know them, you should just compliment their shoes. And that's what I would like to end on. So thank you guys for coming. You're amazing. <laughs>